0: You can learn more about Seeking Integrity and my work there at www.seekingintegrity.com. Now let's get started. Hey everybody, I'm really glad that you joined us today or are continuing to listen today at Sex, Love, and Addiction. I'm really pleased today at the gentleman I asked to speak. It's Jason Swilling. Hi Jason. Hi. Hi. Jason is, I got that little high in, Jason is a manager at our treatment center. He oversees seeking integrity and the day-to-day activities that happen with the clients and their interactions with the therapists. And the reason I wanted Jason to come on is not only because he's wonderful and interesting and he's an MDiv, he has a master's in divinity, so he does a lot of spiritual work for those clients who want to do it. But I get questions a lot like, what is treatment about? Like, everybody asks, you know, what happens there? And what happens when somebody goes away for a couple of weeks or a month? Like, do you just fix them? Do you wave a magic wand? You know, do you give them discipline? I mean, what is the deal? And Jason, I think you are in a position even better than me as a therapist to talk about what happens in treatment because you see the guys that we work with, not just when they're in a group, but you see them on the weekends, you see them in the evenings. You really are the liaison between their living situation and their home that we manage. So, welcome, Jason. First of all, thank you for coming.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: How long have you been working with addicts in general? Maybe that would just help us have some background. Certainly. I've been
1: working with addicts for the better part of 20 years. I got sober for the first time when I was 18 and started sponsoring people when I was about 20. Uh, So I've been working with addicts for a long time. Not quite as long as you though, Dr. Weiss, that's for sure.
0: Well, that's because I'm old. That has nothing to do with you. When you're my age, you will have had as many years of working with addicts as I have. It's really just very simple. So let me actually, since you said that, and I really appreciate the fact that, that I get to work with people who all of whom, every one of whom have at least 20 years or more experience working in the addiction field. I think that matters. I think experience matters. Jason, you're working with sex addicts now, and you're working with people who are acting out you know, in affairs and prostitutes and online and hookers and porn and all that nasty stuff. And I wonder what it, do you feel any difference in working with these guys who have sex addiction, and some of them who have chem sex, meth sex as well, and working with, let's say, your average alcoholic or drug addict. Is there any difference in the way they approach treatment or their experience of the work? Or, I mean, I, I think it's a little bit deeper, but I don't. I'm not in it like you are, especially with your non-sex and love addicted addicts. So uh, you know, addict, alcoholic addicts. So do you see differences?
1: I see some differences and I see a lot of similarities. The differences that I see really is that you have a lot of a lot more first-timers. So this is their first time approaching recovery.
0: Older, like not a first-timer who's 17, but a first-timer who's 40.
1: Exactly, uh, 40 or 50, never been to a 12-step meeting or treatment or anything like that. So they're very green coming in. Whereas a drug addict, they've usually had some wrestling or struggling with it, trying to, you know, trying to do it on their own for some period of time before they come into treatment. And they usually have some kind of experience
0: with 12 step. Yeah. Do you think that, and this is going to be an unfair question, but I'm asking anyway, do you think that the, in general, the people who are a little bit older and dealing with these. Really quite emergent family issues or work issues. They're going to lose somebody. They're going to lose their job. They're going to lose their kid. Do you see them being more serious or taking treatment at a a, a different level than, let's say, a 25-year-old who's got a drug or alcohol problem?
1: I do because they've, uh, they've lived a lot longer, so they've built up more of a life. And then when they stand to lose it, they're standing to lose everything, which is a lot for them. Whereas a twenty-five-year-old, they really haven't pieced very much together at their in their life at this point, so they don't stand to lose as much, and they're generally using their parents' insurance uh, more or less. So,
0: so what you're saying is someone else is paying for their care, and they don't have as much to lose, so they they want to go through it, but they not have the internal motivation for themselves that they're doing this because there's something so important to them, like our guys often do.
1: That's correct. They seem the guys that are coming to work with us here seem. Like they're in that desperation more so than a kid who's 25 and using his parents' insurance. Uh, They have to invest more, you know, at the age of 40, 50 or 60, even 30. And it costs them more. So they are investing themselves more as well as their money.
0: One of the things that I wanted, Jason, to mention to you, because I know this, folks, for myself, is that when you build a community of people that are healing, the work isn't really the treatment. And this is what I wanted this episode to be about. What is treatment when you send someone a resident, good residential treatment? It isn't just about the lecture that they get every day. They get a lecture every day. They get something about addiction. They get something about a trauma. They get something about relapse prevention. They get something about family issues and, and being able to repair a broken relationship. But it doesn't just happen in lectures. And then they get therapy and they're sitting for an hour, an hour and a half in a group, sometimes an hour with an individual person. This, okay, this is a, I've always wanted to use this expression. It seems to me that the sum is greater than the parts. Whew, I've always wanted to say that. Meaning what they come out as, having had experienced all this is different than just going to the lecture or just going to the group. There's a, there's a cumulative piece that I think you Jason see because you're working with them on weekends and evenings. What do you think comes out of the the mix of all of those pieces as opposed to if they just went to a group on Friday nights or something like that?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And that's a good way of putting it too. The sum is greater than the parts because yes, people do group therapy. They have psychoeducation, but When you put it all together and in a context where people are living together, they're immersed in the recovery, especially if they've never had any recovery experience before. It really provides a dynamic that you can't get without going to treatment.
0: What do you mean by dynamic? Because I'm just, and I'll be a patient now. So I'm just here for me and yeah, there's some other guys around and yeah, you know, it's great that they're here and I hear their stories and I kind of relate, but I'm here to just work on myself. That's not a dynamic. So, what happened? That something more than that happens. What is it?
1: Absolutely. Well, just like Gabor Mate says, that the, the opposite of addiction is connection. When you're going through treatment 24 hours a day, living with other people, with other guys who are going through the same process, you can't help but connect.
0: Living with their pain, living with their heartache, living with their joys and sorrows. Because in
1: that kind of living environment, uh, guys start to get vulnerable. They start to share their pain. They start not only do they share the conquests and the things that they've done in their addiction, but they also start to share their vulnerabilities, their molestation when they were a child or, you know, any of those other kinds of traumas. And they they become vulnerable with each other. And that's the heart of connection. Mm -hmm. And so the vulnerability with the vulnerability, guys are connecting really without really trying to connect, but they get to experience what it is to be connected. And they take that with them,
0: you know, back home where they go. So Jason, what I think you're saying is that they get something that comes up inside of them from being in their groups, being in the therapy. And then when they're living together, it all kind of comes out (laughs) like in this big mush of pain and anxiety and fear and homework and questions. and, And they're mushed together as a group of people. And through in that confusion, in that pain in that information, they find each other, is kind of what you're saying.
1: That's right. They really do. They find each other in a way that they're able to connect with each other in a way that they have not done so before. By sharing their pain, they've become known by that other person because they're sharing things that they haven't talked about in maybe ever, uh, but certainly for years and years and years. So just by becoming vulnerable and authentic with what they're sharing in group and in other places in treatment, they become known by that other client. And by being known, that's where they feel like that vulnerability and that
0: connection. So maybe I can kind of put a knot around some of this. I know that some of the men we work with, they have secrets they've never told anyone. And others have secrets that some people know about, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. But almost to a one, none of them has ever sat down and told their entire life history all of their behavior, everything that they've done and everything that happened to them. And they've certainly never had that witnessed because in their adult lives, they're hiding addictive behavior from people. And in their childhoods, they have things that were hidden from themselves and others. So they've never really seen or looked at their whole life like on a board in front of them. And then to have other people witness it, is, is sort of something magical. In a way, it's different than if we just did it one. Like if you and I sat down, we worked with a patient and we went through his history and talked to him about everything that ever happened to him, put it all up there, it would be very moving and, and interesting and engaging. And that person would grow. But Jason, what is different if there are five people in the room and they're all going through their history and they're all learning about each other? What happens then?
1: Well, first, the, the person who's sharing realizes that they're not alone. They're not They're not the only people that have done these things, whereas when when we're isolated in our addiction, we do feel like we're alone.
0: So most people who come into addiction and certainly come to a treatment center feel like, despite what our spouses think, which is you're a piece of crap and you've ruined my life and you deserve to be there, as spouses should, we too are thinking, God, I'm kind of messed up. God, I really screwed up. God, there's something really deeply wrong with me. I'm really broken. So we have a lot of shame and self-hatred when we go into a treatment center, especially at the level of going into treatment, because most of us have done things that were got us into treatment that are horrible. And so- we're used to telling our stories and people saying, "Oh, that's really awful," or "I hate you," or "How could you do that to me?" Or, and for the first time, we tell our stories and someone says, "Huh? Wow, I I did some things like that too. I feel bad about it too," and that makes it different somehow, right?
1: Oh, absolutely, it makes it different because we're not the only people that have that have done that, but even more so,
0: we're not the only people who've hurt other people, and not only the people who've let ourselves and other people down in a whole variety of ways. Right,
1: right. So we have this sense of by feeling like we're not the only people that have done this, it takes away some of the shame. We don't feel like we're as bad of people. And maybe there's some hope that we can get better.
0: So wait a minute, I want to interrupt you, Jason, because I think that anybody, especially a spouse sending to someone to treatment, wants them to feel bad about their behavior. And in fact, I want people to feel badly about what they've done so they can correct their behavior and not do it badly again. I mean, that's part of feeling guilty is you learn from it and you learn not to do it again. But it's not that we don't want them to feel badly, but I think you're talking about self-hatred and shame. That's right. What's the difference between one of our clients who feels like, ah, you know, I wish I hadn't done that. I really hurt somebody. I got to learn a lesson. I really hurt someone. And I'm an awful person for having done that. I hate myself. I'm never going to be a good person. I've ruined everyone's lives. What's the difference between those two?
1: Well, from what I've seen, the main difference is that it's a feeling about the person versus a feeling about the action. And if I feel like this action was a horrible action, I never want to do this action again. I, ha- I might have some motivation to to do the necessary actions to not take the action again, not do the destructive action again. When it's internalized to where I feel like I'm a bad person and... Uh,
0: shame, that's what that is, it's it's shame. shame,
1: right. Then I don't see any hope. I don't see any way of getting out of it. And so because I'm a bad person, I have no other choice but to, to just do it again. But of course, that's all on a subconscious level. What happens is I feel the shame. I feel like I'm a horrible person, like I've let all these people down. And so then, and and we have. And so what happens is we don't know how to get out of that. We don't know how to stop doing it. And so in order to make ourselves feel better, we just get lost in fantasy again. To to make ourselves feel better about the shame that we
0: So wait a minute. This goes back to what you were saying about the opposite of addiction is connection. Meaning that what we're teaching people, they're they're still going to. What you're saying basically is that part of what drives addiction is people's low self-esteem, them reaching negative conclusions about themselves, them running away from their pain, thinking there's no answer. And what you're saying is when we put them in treatment, they get a different lens. They say, well, maybe I wasn't doing this because I'm a horrible person. Maybe I made a whole lot of mistakes and really didn't understand how to live a healthy life, but I can do it differently.
1: That's right. Because you, you can see it in the guys when they come in. They desperately want to live a different life. What do you see? You say you can see it, but tell me what you see. I can see it. What I see when someone comes in and it's their first day, they just got off the plane and they're entering treatment for the first time, what I see is a large level, a high level of desperation to live a different life. And maybe coming to treatment, it's the first glimmer of hope that they can live differently because they really don't want to hurt everyone that they've hurt so deeply. They just don't know
0: how to stop. You're talking about hope, that a lot of our guys come into treatment feeling fairly hopeless about themselves, and that there's something about watching the other men and saying, well, wait a minute, he seems like a reasonable guy who's kind of broken, and he seems like a good guy, but boy, he's really messed up. Maybe I'm just a good guy who's messed up too. That that doesn't take them off the hook. They're still responsible and accountable for their behavior. They still have to clean it up and not engage in it again. But they look at it as more something that comes out of their brokenness rather than comes out of um, their being unlovable. Because in the house, they're getting loved by the people they're working with. So let me ask you that. How is it that these people who barely know each other, and I've experienced this in treatment a million times, they're with each other for three days and they're family. They know everything about each other. They care about each other. They have each other's backs. What is that magic that happens in treatment? Because that's the part that's the most exciting to me. And you can't really, it's hard to articulate, but they become brothers in some way. Talk about that a little bit. Well, it, I
1: think it all hinges upon one of the things that you just said, which is they know everything about each other. within the first few days these guys are sharing their stories because they've never they haven't been able to share it with anyone they have not shared it with anyone
0: or haven't chosen
1: they could have shared it with with other people but they haven't and now for the first time they're starting to share their story all the crazy stupid decisions that they made and then the good stuff with their families as well so they're sharing all of it and by sharing all of it that's how they become known And by becoming known with each other, it's the first time that's happened in probably decades. That's where the brotherhood comes from. That's where the intimacy and the support come from.
0: Non-sexual, supportive intimacy, men among each other, supporting each other toward healing. I mean, that's, you know, Jason, when I um, started the therapy field, I don't know if they taught you this in the divinity school, but I remember learning that the body seeks to heal. And that if you put our body, if, you know, if you break a bone or something and you, put it in the right you know you put it in the right kind of sling you give it the right kind of plaster whatever it needs that the body will heal if you put it in the right circumstances and i feel that and i've always felt that the mind is similar that if we put ourselves in situations that are likely to promote healing then we're going to heal hey there i sure hope you're enjoying this sex love and addiction podcast What you're talking about, this therapeutic environment where we bring people together and then we say to them, okay, we want you to open your hearts, your minds, and be completely open and honest with each other and really come together. That provo- that creates the circumstances for genuine non-sexual supportive intimacy to take place. And I can't help but notice, Jason, that this is what the wives want. This is what the spouses want. Anybody who sends someone to treatment for sexual acting out or romantic acting out and all of that stuff, they feel like, wait a minute, he's being intimate with all these guys in the house. I think that's what I was hoping for from him, that he would actually be more intimate with me. So do you think that this is sort of a example of how they might begin to live in the real world?
1: Absolutely. To so see what happens is we have this lack of it as an addict in our addiction. We have this lack of intimacy, this inability to be intimate with others.
0: We have to hide. Wait a minute. We get married. We have relationships. How come? What do you mean we're not intimate?
1: Well, we're not being authentic and vulnerable and open and honest with our spouse or our partner. Therefore, we're kind of living a double life. That's right. And that double life keeps us from being able to be intimate with our partner. So what we do in this therapeutic environment is first, we learn how to be intimate. Now, it's in a safe environment, a safe place to where we learn how to be intimate with other guys in a, that safe
0: environment. Now, intimate, tell me what intimate is one more time. Because when I think about being intimate with someone, a lot of people think having sex,
1: right? But we're not talking about having sex at all. We're talking about true honesty, openness, vulnerability and authenticity with another person in relationship. And so these guys without any sexual contact, they're being open, honest, vulnerable with the other guys in the house and with staff. And by by being completely vulnerable and open and honest, that's where the connection happens and they can feel like family within, you know, three days or so.
0: I can imagine that somebody who's a spouse would think like, I sent my husband, wife, whatever, well, in our case, husband to treatment or guy to treatment. And I hear that he's feeling badly for the other guys in treatment and starting to relate to them and support them. And I'm sitting at home thinking, well, he never supported me, never felt badly for me, never seemed to, and I'm the one who's this partner. How do you come to terms with that? Because a partner is saying, well, wait a minute, a couple of days with a couple of guys and they're open and they're vulnerable and they're being real. And they're, I've lived with the person 20 years and they've never done that. How do we justify or explain that to a spouse?
1: Well, they have nothing to hide. There's no agenda in hiding secrets from these guys. In treatment. In treatment, right.
0: So you're saying that they're so fearful that they're going to get caught or found out or be seen as being unlovable that they keep hiding, hiding, hiding from their spouse because they're more and more afraid that they're going to be abandoned. And, of course, then their behavior leaves them thinking, I'm absolutely going to be abandoned. But the spouses think, well, they don't care about me because they're having sex with other people. Yeah, but that's not usually true. That's not what I've seen,
1: yeah. Right.
0: It's it, Jason will affirm, guys, that the male who is having sex with other people and says to his spouse, male or female, well, you're not attractive. I don't want you anymore. You've gained all this weight. I deserve to be able to have sex with other people. The minute you, his spouse, male or female, move an inch away from him, like, I think I'm done with you, watch how important you are to him. <laughs> because it's only the, the feelings that most of our guys have for the people they love is masked. By their addiction, they've convinced themselves that nothing matters, that they don't matter, and that only the behavior matters. And I think by getting in touch with themselves and then the people in treatment, they're starting to open their hearts. Period, which is going to play out when they go home, even when they're under the gun at home,
1: right? Because they're learning how to be intimate uh, with someone else in a non-sexual way, whereas they haven't they haven't had that that capacity or ability before they're learning how to be empathic which they didn't have that before by but by learning of someone else's trauma and how that helped shape who they are including the addiction you really feel for that other person and these guys are feeling that empathy for the first time in a long time and that, and then they're able to they're able to take that that new capacity for intimacy and empathy and they're able to take that back home with their spouses and start practicing that with their partner as well.
0: And I think this is the thing for a spouse to hear if, if, and not everybody comes to us as in a relationship, some are single, but, but that when someone goes home, we've learned and we can predict, and we understand their capacity for empathy, their capacity for compassion, their capacity for building bridges with their partners, because we've seen it among the men that they spend time with. And, you know, the difference is, like you said, It's much easier for me to be honest with some guy I'm in treatment with, who's also in trouble with his partner, um, as opposed to being honest with my spouse, which is going to have a lot bigger ramifications. So if you've been living with someone you've been lying to for a very long time, and then you come into an environment where you're suddenly asked to be fully and completely honest, and you are, boy, that takes a lot of bricks off your shoulders. Of course, you feel safer. Of course, you feel more connected. And if people don't turn you away, you feel like there's hope and i think that speaks to, to me and i just want to say jason this is why i wanted you on today it is the essence folks of what addiction treatment is about really any treatment it is about connection it is about seeing that I, I don't believe that we can do addiction treatment on our own i'm not even a huge fan don't tell the therapists of individual therapy for addiction treatment because i think it's better done in group it is among my peers where i will find the most where i will find the most profound healing and Jason, let me ask you something. Let's move move a little bit. You're a spiritual counselor. You studied uh, spirituality and you have a master's in this area. I'm not talking about religion because everybody has different beliefs about the G-O-D word and all that. But spirituality, I think, is much more about these connections, this open-heartedness, hope, being open to your family for the first time. How do you see these guys embrace or what? You do some spiritual work with them. So what happens in that process or what do you see happening in that part of their world related to the work that's going on overall?
1: Well, that's a great question. And, and actually it's not as, it's not as difficult as one might imagine because it all starts with desperation.
0: What, what is the it all starts? What do you mean it? Well,
1: what I mean by it is uh, spirituality, spirituality all starts with desperation. If you ask me, uh, so pain and desperation, that's a, that's a, a good articulation. When I feel immense amounts of pain, you know, uh emotional pain. Um, that's not that's not gonna sound right.
0: No, but it does sound right because what you're saying is it creates an opening for like I'm hurting so much that I'm willing to look at things that I might not have considered before or turn to places I haven't before. And for some people that is a spiritual life. And that is an opening to a spiritual life. I think that's what you're saying.
1: Yeah, that's what I'm getting at with the desperation creating willingness. Yeah, and that's this is what I use with the guys. I'll talk about out of that pain that we feel from the discovery, from the, the dad that we're not able to be, or the partner or spouse that we're not able to be, from not living the life that we wanted to live and having it all coming, crashing down with our addiction that creates that immense amounts of pain and desperation. At that spot, we become more willing to do things that we haven't been done, we have not done.
0: You know, it's interesting because I'm thinking about spirituality in my own life. And, you know, as adults, we can find spirituality through other strong feelings like love. You know, I look at my niece, my daughter's children. I look at kids I love or family I love. And, I, you know, I see my spirituality and my connection through love. So I think it's, you're right, it is a strong, desperate need for something bigger than myself that will help is absolutely when that spirituality thing comes up. It can also come up when I'm so filled with love and appreciation that it's bigger than me. But in our world, it's kind of both, I think. Because what you're saying is, yes, I'm desperate that I've hurt my family, I've hurt my people I love, I've hurt you know whatever that is, I've hurt myself. But there's also this hope for maybe we could be connected. Maybe, I think a lot of our folks in treatment get connected with the love they have for their spouses, with the love they have for their kids. In the absence of those people, they're not even around and we're talking about them. Maybe you could mention a little bit about that. Like, How do families and kids and the important people in these people's lives show up in the treatment center? Because you know, partners are always saying, well, yeah, he gets two weeks or a month of treatment and I'm not even involved, but they are involved. Can you speak a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. The guys are starting to feel the pain that they've caused the other people. So while the spouse or the kids aren't with, aren't with them presently in treatment, they're certainly looking at the pain that they've caused their loved ones. And so it seems like a process. First, I connect with spirituality out of my pain and desperation. But then after I experience connection and the joy of connecting. With the other patient. Yeah, with another patient. Then I experience spirituality and that connection. And through that connection of hope and love, that provides some internal motivation to to keep trying to connect spiritually, whether I've connected spiritually, you know, spiritually before or
0: not. You're so right, Jason. Because I've seen so many people in treatment, you know, I'm so angry at my spouse and my kids don't matter. They've just, you know, taken from me. And then that guy who's that angry like that will look across the room and you hear another man talk about his love for his family, his children, and you just watch him fall apart because all those defenses melt in the face of watching some other man express his love and appreciation for his family. Gay or straight, doesn't matter. It's all about love and connection. And when we see pain about connection, we relate to it. And I think that is a tremendous gift that the spouses don't necessarily understand is that these men are empathizing with each other's loss of their families, their connection, their career, the things that matter to them. And they, they get that, even if they don't get it in their own life. Even if they're really mad at their spouse or whatever, they look at that other guy and says, wow, he has love in his relationship. I want love too.
1: And you, you can see it in group when one person opens up and becomes very vulnerable and shares a lot of their pain and their crying and weeping. There's not another dry eye in the, in the group. Everyone is feeling that and crying and weeping and feeling those emotions right along with that other, that other person.
0: You know, I, I want to mention something about that, Jason. I hope it's okay. I'm going to do this in a very confidential way. But we had a client. Jason and I were sitting in a group last week together, and uh, it was a group about sex, as we do. And I, I, this is the truth, Jason. I, you can validate this. I wanted to do a really simple group, one that didn't bring up a lot of issues, right? And I just wanted to get to know the guys. And I was being, and I said, let's pick something really liked to start this group off. And I often pick this particular issue. How did you first find out about sex? Because I think that's an interesting kind of often not too heavy question, like, oh, I was told by a friend at camp, or I heard my mom in the other room, or, you know, you just, or I read a book and I thought that's ridiculous. My parents don't do that. <laughs> that's usually the kind of story you hear. Jason and I were running a group and I posted the guys, you know, how'd you find out about sex? And the first guy out of the box, abuse, incest, violation, not just once, but multiple times before he was 11. And I thought we're just going to talk about some silly thing you heard from a friend when he was nine. But this is what happens. And the workers all of a sudden, even though we didn't intend to be there, we all were crying with this person over what had happened to him when he was eight. And you can't help it. You can't help but see this person as an eight-year-old just wanting to be a good kid and ending up being harmed and then harmed again and again. And those are the kinds of things that happen. You know, I think in real life, you went to a gym, you were hanging out at the locker room. Hey, dude, how'd you find out about sex? That wouldn't happen. And it is in this vulnerability that is created among other people who are in pain and desperate for hope that this kind of connecting healing happens. Gosh, that was a powerful group the other day.
1: It was. And I'll share with the guys in their very first meditation, which is the first thing they do on the first treatment day. And I'll talk about how this may very well be the safest place that they've ever been or will ever be. Because not only is it confidential, nothing that they share is going to leave the room or the treatment. They have multiple guys that are, that are there for them for support. They also have professionals that are, that are trained in this field that can help them through their, their issues. And their confidentiality is not only protected by the the integrity and the ethics of the people that are there, but it's also protected by law. So they can share everything and anything that they want to share and talk about and then receive professional services that constitute their healing and at least the beginning of their healing process.
0: Well, I think it's important to say that, um, just to say it, that I also don't run off to a spouse and say, "Guess what your husband said today." You know, that all of it is therapeutic. So the process of how a spouse might come to find out about a history is a long-term process that would be integrated. But it's not just going to be, "Oh, I want to know," and uh, because we want to protect and take care of everyone. So Jason, I know we're going to talk again because you do such great work with our clients and I'm so really appreciative to know you and work with you. Is there any particular moment that comes to mind when I say, okay, in the last year of working with our folks, is there something that touched you particularly or moved you personally, particularly that you could share that you think might be helpful for folks? A moment that you had, something that someone said to you, a a moment you saw happen between two people? or something maybe you understood happened between a spouse and someone while they were with us? Is there any one thing, I know there's a million, but anything comes to mind when I say, is there something that comes to mind?
1: Yes, um, the one that comes to mind when, when you ask that question first was uh, a gentleman who was probably around the age of 60, in his early 60s, late 50s actually, And there was a trauma that had happened to him when he was a young child, I think around, uh, I think, age seven. And he was sharing about this trauma. It was the first time that he had shared about this trauma and he had held on to it for 50 years. So he was sharing something that happened to him that he had never shared in 50 years. And then to watch the other clients and the staff just rally in support around him. Mm, Like he
0: never got when he was a kid.
1: Yeah, like he was a kid and just wrap around him with love and support. And everyone was just weeping along with this gentleman. And the support didn't stop there. That was day three of 14 days of treatment. And so they took, we just kept loving on him and supporting him and validating him for his courage for the next 11 days. And he was a different person when he left here.
0: While also challenging him and confronting him and teaching him. And, you know, that part doesn't stop. Hey folks, I just want to, I just wanted to share the quality of the people that I work with and the excitement that I have every day about being able to help people heal, whether it's in our program or any program, when the work is done well, it means it's done with a focus on the group and a focus on these men or women who was ever in treatment at the time, really building deep, meaningful peer bonds. And out of those peer bonds can come the kinds of relationships that so many spouses want to have with our clients because they learn how to have them. <laughs> and they learn how to have them with us. They learn how to be accepted and known fully with us. And then they go and practice that in their relationships. And it's funny thing. I'll stop with this. I am a man in my late 50s. And it is shocking to me that there are things about family and connection and peace and the holidays and that I just never learned when I was a kid. And some of those things I learned at 45. Some of those things I learned at 50, you know, because I just it was a little crazy when I was growing up and no one ever taught me about some healthy things that I'm still learning as an adult that most people take for granted as an adult. And I think we bring together groups of people who have a lot of lessons to learn from early life that they just never got. And we're teaching them how to do that without shame and judgment. It's a great thing. Uh, Anybody wants to be a therapist, give me a ring. (laughs) Jason and I will be glad to embrace you. Jason, so before we stop, how can people find you? How can they find information about treatment, your email, the website address of the Treatment Center?
1: Go for it. So it's uh, seekingintegrity.com. And my email address is jason at seekingintegrity.com. You can email me and reach me at any time. uh, Or you can reach us on our website.
0: Thank you for being a part of the work we do. You do an amazing job. And I know that the men feel entirely supported by you. Yes.
1: Thank you. And I really appreciate the the opportunity to work with you. It's been, it's been wonderful so far.
0: Well, you know, I'm a kick butt therapist and I try to help everybody grow a little bit in the process. So folks, thank you so very much for joining us. I hope this gives you a sense of what treatment is about. We did not talk about this lecture, that piece of homework, this phone call, that book chapter. We talked about what it means to be in treatment, which is to grow your heart. And I I know that sounds very casual, but I hope that you heard that it's actually a very deliberate process that we go through in the work that we do so that people can be connected to people and not activities, behaviors, drugs, alcohol, and sex. Thanks for joining Sex, Love, and Addiction today. This is Dr. Rob. Hi, this is dr rob again thank you for joining us today if this show has inspired you to seek further information for yourself or someone you love i encourage you to visit our treatment center website which is www.seekingintegrity.com there you'll find some useful information about the residential treatment we provide which i think is some of the best most useful short-term effective intensive care you can find for sexual addiction and compulsivity as well as combine drug sex or chem sex problems. On seekingintegrity.com, you can find some useful advice and direction for healing. And don't forget, if you want to write me about this podcast or reach any of my guests, please write me at rob at seekingintegrity.com. I really look forward to our next time together. Take good care.